You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, well thanks for taking some time to greet one another. If you want to head to your seats, we'll begin. If you want to open to Luke chapter 4, that's where we'll be today. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. If you're using one of the hardback black Bibles in the back, uh, you're on page 859. And if you don't own a Bible or you need one, feel free to take one of those with you today. This is our gift to you. We want to have God's Word in our hand as we hear it preached. And so we want to provide those and uh, encourage you to use them. So feel free to grab one of those. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us this afternoon. And today we're going to continue our series called Tired of Being Tired, Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. We started the series last week, and I argued that as we follow Jesus, we don't just want to learn from his way or learn from his words, his teaching, and we don't just want to receive his works, but we we want to actually follow in his ways. Our desire in this series is to learn the ways of Jesus. And in our passage, we're going to see how Jesus combats the lies that we are so often tempted to believe, lies that the evil one wants us to believe. And one of the greatest dangers in the world, sometimes it's the most dangerous because we don't always expect it. But one of the greatest dangers is the, in the world are the lies that we believe about our identity. And Jesus experienced this very danger himself in his own ministry, and we're going to see how he responds to that today. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Again, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's page 859. I'll read and you can follow along. The words will also be on the screen behind me. This is what God's word says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation and departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. We know that the flower fades, the grass withers, but your word will stand forever. And so as we open our Bibles this afternoon, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes by the power of your spirit that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2018, a video went viral. It began in Russia and went to Eastern Europe and then to Western Europe and even into the United States. It was completely viral, but it was also a complete hoax. The woman who was in the video, she claimed to be protesting against men who took up too much room on the subway, something that's apparently known as manspreading. And so she said she had this bottle of water mixed with bleach, and she walked up to these men in the video and poured water on their pants. And she said she only had enough bleach to leave a stain, not enough to do any damage. And she, uh, as expected, enraged a lot of people in, in various ways. Now, again, this video, as it came out, was a lie. Turns out that all these victims were actually actors. They were paid to do this. And the point, it was actually produced by the Kremlin, and the point was actually to enrage these, these differences that already existed within society. For those who were feminists, it enraged them, it galvanized them to say, yes, she should be doing this and fighting for our cause. For those who were anti-feminist, which was really the Kremlin's objective, it rallied them to the Kremlin's cause to try and root out and, and fight against any sort of Western feminist liberal advocacy. Now, the reason that I say this is because it had such a significant impact and it was all based on a lie. It was a lie, of course, that pushed upon pre-existing fractures within society, and in many ways, this is the way that the evil one wants to tempt us. So often, he goes about it as he presses upon already existing fears and fractures that exist in our heart, and he roots these temptations in lies. Here's the primary message of our sermon this afternoon. Beneath every temptation is a lie about our identity. So we need to know who we are in Christ. Beneath every temptation is a lie about our identity, and so we need to know who we are in Christ. And we're going to go about this. This is our outline this afternoon. First, beneath every temptation is a lie. Second, beneath every temptation is one of three core lies. And third, we combat these lies by rehearsing our identity. So we'll begin with point number one, beneath every temptation is a lie. Our passage here begins with Jesus going out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit. He's alone there in the wilderness. He's hungry, and the devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. What a powerful two-letter word that is, if. And it is where the lie begins. At its core, this is a temptation meant to lead Jesus to question his identity as the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, the devil begins, then prove it. Solve your hunger problems. Turn that bread into stone. Aren't you the Lord of all creation after all? Satisfy your hunger and your appetite. This is not primarily a temptation to eat, though. It is a temptation rooted deeper in Christ's identity. This was also true of the very first temptation in the history of the world. In Genesis 3, after God created everything good and beautiful, the pinnacle of his creation, humanity lived in perfect harmony with God and with all of creation, and into the garden Satan comes as a serpent with a lie. 
causing Adam and Eve to question their identity as part of God's creation and God's intent for his creation. And here's what the devil says in Genesis 3, 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this is not what God said at all, of course. He did not say they couldn't eat from any tree, just one single tree. Adam and Eve lived in a world of yes with one single no, and Satan begins to turn God's intentions around with a lie. Now, I'm not going to walk through the entire scene in Genesis 3, but the dialogue does continue between Satan and Eve, and eventually Satan tempts Eve to believe that God did not actually have her best in mind, and that if she ate from the tree, she would become like God. And so she gave in to this temptation rooted in a lie, and... The rebellion of creation had begun. Jesus came to undo that sin. And in contrast to Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus right now was in physical weakness and hunger. Adam and Eve had everything they could need in the garden. Jesus lacked nearly every good thing in the wilderness. But Jesus was not weak because Jesus was confident in his true identity. He knew who he was. Right before the wilderness temptation of Luke chapter 4 is Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3. And it says that as Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and a voice comes from heaven. This is God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus goes into the wilderness just having heard the affirmation of his heavenly father telling him that he is his son, and Satan tries to attack this core identity. Here's why this matters for us, because Satan will tempt us by lying to us about our identity as well. He did it in the garden, he does it in this passage with Jesus, and he'll do it with you and with me. This is expressed in all sorts of ways, simple lies at times that will lead us to selfishness toward others, or at times big and deep lies that will leave us paralyzed in self-hatred. And here for me, here's a lie that I have believed far too often, that comfort and control is what I need most in my home. And when my children then violate the sanctity of my peace and my quiet, then I believe the lie that I can violate the sanctity of their dignity as image bearers of God and respond harshly to them to regain control and comfort again. In these moments, There are fundamental lies that I have started to believe about myself and about God and about this, the way this world operates, that I deserve comfort and so I, I should not be inconvenienced, that I deserve control and I should be listened to, that my children do not deserve my patience and my grace because they didn't listen and obey immediately. And the reality is this is a wicked way to live. This is not how I want to see the world. This is a lie that I have been trying to undo in my mind for years. But I'm tempted to believe these lies far more often than I care to admit. And where I so often fail, Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Jesus was able to resist the temptation because he knew his true identity. He was confident in what God had said about who he was. He was God's beloved son. Jesus didn't need to prove anything to Satan. He knew who he was. 
And so here's the rhythm that we're trying to embrace together this afternoon. In this series, we're going to give you several different rhythms. Today's rhythm could be called rehearsing our identity. To rehearse something is to recite it or to practice it with the goal of becoming proficient. Our worship team just led us so wonderfully in singing earlier, and in order to do that, they rehearsed before today. Today was not the first time that they saw that music. If it was, we probably would have noticed, and they would have been terrified up there. And I know this because my wife was playing the violin, and over the past few weeks, she has taken out her violin, and she has practiced. If we rehearse something enough, then it becomes familiar. We develop muscle memory around it. It becomes part of us. If you want to resist the temptation that comes from lies about your identity, then you also need to develop the rhythm of rehearsing your true identity to yourself. Jesus resisted the devil because he knew who he was. It's not like he got out to the wilderness and then was all of a sudden like, who am I? Is what, G- is what Satan's saying right now true or not true? He knew who he was. This was firmly established in him long before the wilderness. You cannot wait until you're confronted with the lie or you'll be powerless to resist the temptation. Now, if our first point is that beneath every lie or every temptation is a lie, then point number two is that beneath every temptation is one of three core lies. Satan attacks Jesus in three different ways in our passage, and in each one of them, we see one of the core lies that is common to all of humanity. And we could summarize these three core temptations with three, three different words, appetite, ambition, or approval. Now, before we go any further, I should add that I did not come up with this delineation. Okay, I'm not creative enough to come up with that. That's, that came from someone else. I actually learned it first from Shane Stacy, who happens to be here today. So I don't know, Shane, if you want to come and finish, we can trade spots. Shane got it from uh, author and teacher Dave Rhodes. And so just to share with you, I, I didn't come up with this, but it's massively helpful in my life. I want to share it with you. So appetite. The first temptation from Jesus is about appetite. Satan begins, if you are the son of God, then satisfy your appetite by turning these stones into bread. If Jesus is God's son, then he should not have to suffer hunger and want. This is the devil's reasoning. The temptation of appetite is a temptation of need and satisfaction. If I have a need in me, then it should be satisfied. And if it's not, then something is wrong with God or something is wrong with me. This is the way the thinking goes. Satan is tempting Jesus to reject God's pattern of redemption that has so often come from a place of weakness and a place of need. The temptation of appetite is based on a core lie that I'll never have enough which then keeps me focused on what I don't have but want or on what I think I need to be satisfied. And we are tempted in this way to be dissatisfied with what God has declared as sufficient to meet our needs. But Jesus does not give in to this lie. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. The second temptation of Jesus is one of ambition. It's seen in verses 5 through 8 in our passage. The devil shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and then Satan says that he has the ability to give all their authority and their glory to Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't dispute this point. So in some way, 
Satan does have some type of authority to give this authority and glory to Jesus, but Jesus knows that it is a shabby substitute for the kingdom that God is bringing about through the sacrificial, sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Satan is offering Jesus an easy way out, an alternative way to get glory and power, but it will require Jesus to worship the devil, as it says in verse 7. The temptation for ambition is a temptation for power and glory by any means necessary. And it is based on the lie that I'll never accomplish enough. I will always need to strive for more success. And all the better if I can get the power and glory without as much work. Forget about God's design to redeem the world, which might actually require me to fail by the world's standards. I want to win, is what we say to ourselves. We are tempted to be suspicious of God's design for greatness through humility and service. But Jesus does not give in to this lie. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. The third temptation of Jesus is one of approval, seen in verses 9 through 12. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the Son of God... And here we see this word if again, this statement, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Doesn't the Bible say that God will protect you through his angels? This is a temptation here to see if God approves of Jesus enough to protect him. The core lie that we are tempted to believe is that I'll never be enough. I won't ever be truly loved or accepted. So I'm always looking for ways that people might be rejecting me. Satan wanted Jesus to question what God had declared at his baptism, that he is his beloved son, and in him he is well pleased. We are tempted in this way to be skeptical that God could actually love us as we are. And so we're prone to find our approval in other things. But Jesus did not give in to this lie. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Now, we are all prone to believe one of these lies more than the others. Appetite, I'll never have enough. Ambition, I'll never accomplish enough. Or approval, I'll never be enough. And so I ask you, which of these three are you most tempted to believe? And the reality is that we're not only tempted by just one, but our temptations multiply themselves. Because so often we multiply our brokenness by medicating the first issue with a secondary issue. And I can illustrate this from my own life. I am most tempted to believe the approval lie. That's what I feel most deeply in the core of me, that I'll never be enough. I struggle to believe God's promise that he loves me through Christ. And this started long before I ever knew Jesus as my Savior, Somewhere in my childhood, I had internalized the lie that I could not be vulnerable, that I was not loved apart from the approval of others. One of the most vivid memories I have from my childhood was when I was 12 years old. My younger sister had just died from a firearm accident. She was six years old. I was 12, and I remember sitting in the very front pew of the church at the funeral. And we're nearing the end of the funeral, and I leaned into my dad for comfort. And I remember feeling uncomfortable and insecure. Somewhere along the line, by the age of 12, I had internalized this idea that I could not be vulnerable 
in my father's arms, and that it was not okay for me. It was not safe for me as a 12-year-old to grieve at the death of my sister. That's a lie that I've been healing from for over two decades. And my initial response was to medicate that lie with another one, which was through ambition. I thought I could conquer that through ambition. I was a fairly capable young man, so I pursued every accomplishment I could. And I did a lot of things in high school. As a result, I actually entered this statewide competition my senior year to see who was the most accomplished high school senior in the entire state of Minnesota in the areas of arts and academics and athletics. And so we wrote down everything we had done, and we gave these speeches, went to this competition, I got second in the entire state of Minnesota for all these accomplishments I had done. But through it all, I was never satisfied. It never satisfied the lie. I could never accomplish enough to overcome the lie that I would never be enough. And it wasn't just a teenage Jeremy problem, right? They don't just go away. This pattern still exists. I even felt it just this past week. Now, by God's grace, I've learned to identify it quicker. I've learned to rehearse my identity, to conquer that lie with the reality of the gospel. But it still exists in me, and it exists in each of you in one way or another. You have to learn your own patterns rooted in one of these three lies that you'll never be enough, have enough, or accomplish enough. But let's remember, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. See, we're not helpless in this. There is hope. And so we come to the third point. We combat these lies by rehearsing our identity. How did Jesus respond to the devil at each temptation? He quotes God's word back to him. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew his place in the grand story of redemption that God was unfolding as revealed in God's word. And that didn't just happen on the spot. As we said earlier, he rehearsed it. He, there was repetition. There was reminders. There was a rehearsal of the true story. He knew who he was. And what Jesus resisted personally in the desert determined the power with which he then lived in his ministry. And what Jesus defeated permanently on the cross determines the power with which we live these lives as his followers. Because at the cross, Jesus experienced the curse for all of our brokenness and all of our sins so that we today can walk in blessing and peace and freedom. In regards to approval, Jesus became rejected at the cross so that we could become fully accepted. He was rejected by those whom he came to save, and he became sin on our behalf so that we could be made right before God. As a result, God has adopted us as sons and daughters. God has proven his commitment to us, killing our need for approval. And as a result, we have a new identity as family. So we can freely love others like family because we have all the acceptance we could ever need in our loving God and Father, rendering the approval or the rejection of others as powerless. Now, with regard to ambition, Jesus became weak so that we could become strong. He was crushed for our sin, and in his wounds we have been healed. The same spirit that empowered Christ and raised him from the dead now lives in us, and we are empowered to live as witnesses in this world. Ministers of his reconciliation without a need to make a name for ourselves because we worship the only one who is worthy to be praised. So we proclaim the good news about Jesus. That's where our ambition goes. 
Now, with regard to our appetites, Jesus became needy so that we could become fully satisfied. He became poor so that in him we could have all that we truly need. Jesus served us selflessly in ways that we could never serve ourselves. And he frees us from the need to satisfy our own appetite. He gave up bread in the wilderness, and he gave up his breath at the cross so that we could have all that we ever truly need in him. As a result, we can selflessly serve the least and the last and the lost and the left out because we have more than we could ever need in Christ. So we freely give by his abundant grace. And this is really liberating for us to know as followers of Jesus, that these lies have been undone in Christ. The power for us to overcome the lies is not created by us, but from outside of ourselves. It was given to us. And what a massive difference between what I'm talking about right now and the strategy of modern psychology. See, lies and negative thoughts, they're not unique to Christians. Our whole society and culture are dealing with these same things. But the way to fight them the way we fight them is unique. We're not unique to have to deal with them, but we get to fight them in a unique way because of Christ. We all know that we need an alternative narrative to believe than the lies, the self-hatred, and the negativity that creeps in. But rather than depend on a mantra or a positive affirmation that we have come up with, we trust in what God has said about us in Christ. Because our identity is in Christ, and it didn't come from me. We didn't create it. It was given to us by Jesus, and it is fixed upon our hope at the cross. And so our work is to rehearse this identity, to remind ourselves, to proactively rehearse it so it becomes so familiar to us, so ingrained in who we are and the way we see the world that we build up this muscle memory until our true identity becomes the way through which we see the world. And then when the devil comes to us with a lie, we're ready with the truth about who we are in Christ. One way to do this is to memorize and rehearse Bible passages that are rich in gospel clarity. Rather than believe the lie that you do not have all that you need, you can arm yourself with 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus became poor so that we could have all that we would ever need in him. Start to collect Bible passages that are rich in gospel clarity and rehearse them to yourselves. Or you can also collect prayers and memorize them and repeat them and pray through even the words that you might write down and memorize or you get from others. Or you can find some simple liturgies that will help remind you of the gospel now, liturgy can sound like a scary word, but it's really not a scary word. It just means an intentional pattern, usually repeated, that helps to lead us in worship. This is something our family has tried to do together, and we borrowed a great bedtime liturgy that we got from author Justin Whitmell early. As I'm tucking my kids into bed, I pull them close. Sometimes I hug them. Sometimes I grab their face and look them in the eyes, and I want to remind them of the love of the Father. I want them to know that they can be in the arms of their Father to be vulnerable, to receive love, and that this is a safe place. I want to be a picture of the Heavenly Father's love for them and undo the lives that I've believed. And so I begin with this simple question. I ask, do you know that I love you? 
And they've learned to say, yes, do you know that I love you even when you do bad things? And they say, yes. And so I ask, do you know that I love you when you do good things? And they say, yes. And I say, who else loves you like that? God does. And I say, does he love you better than we do? And they say, yes. I said, then rest in that love tonight. In this simple pattern, this little gospel liturgy, we're rehearsing our identity with them, reminding them of God's love for them in Christ. We want them to know who they are, that they do not need to submit to the lie of never being, doing, or having enough. They have all that they need in their Father's love. And through this liturgy, the reality is for me and Megan, we have been shaped by this. It's a rehearsal of our identity that even though I was 12 and didn't feel safe to grieve in my father's arms at 37, I'm safe in my father's arms. This was highly evident for me how much I need this. When one night I was walking out of the room and Jack called me back in and he said, Dad, do you know that I love you? And I said, yes. He said, do you know that I love you even when you do bad things? And I said, yes. Do you know that I love you when you do good things? Yes. And then he asked me, he said, who else loves you like that? God does. God loves me like that. And he said, rest in his love. And I did. I rested in his love that night. We need these gospel reminders because the reality is beneath every temptation is a lie about who you are. And so we need to know who we are in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.